1: This is a crowd podcast.
2: This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.
3: Little Rock, Pastor Neck, Mickey Mantle, Kerouac, Sputnik, Joe and Lie. Oh my. Oh. Hello again and welcome to episode 61 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick.
1: I am Tom Fordyce.
3: Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with sew and lie.
1: He does, Katie. But while we're talking about how we got here today, it would be remiss of us, not to mention our last few days in the charming Belgian seaside town of Ostend.
3: Ostend. I never knew it existed until (laughs) I was there, much like anywhere I go in the world. And now that I've been there, it totally exists. And can I tell you what? I am still cranked up on the hot chocolate. What are you cranked up on?
1: Katie, I still have a slight throbbing at the temples okay. from the Is that. Belgian where you're throbbing <laughs> from the Belgian beers, which uh, were delightful but punchy.
3: They, in start, the extreme. they they were they were a little punchy, just judging from the unfocused <laughs> look in your eye. Not while we were conducting our podcast, which was the topic Belgians in the Congo, a very dark, dark topic. But we were greeted very warmly by the locals. It was their idea to have us come and talk to them about this.
1: It was their idea, Katie. We looked at the idea and said we could either do this episode in Belgium or the Congo.
3: I would like to go to the Congo, frankly.
1: We will do the Congo another time yes, as a social trip. But it was delightful. (laughs) We had a lot of fun at the podcast festival there. Yes. Um, That episode will be available for subscribers, I believe imminently, Katie, um, because we have jumped slightly ahead of ourselves in the chronology of Billy's song. But to rewind to where we are today... Yeah, let
3: us rewind Rewind. We are discussing, as aforementioned, and Lai, And uh, he was the very first prime minister of the People's Republic of China. He headed up the communist Chinese government for 27 gangbusting years. Now, power-wise, Tom, he was a little bit of a lurker. He never quite nabbed the top spot, from what I understand.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one for me, this, Katie, because I knew a little bit, but not a great deal. However... You can tell by the smile on my face that I'm delighted with our guest today. It is a return for Yang Wen Tsung, the professor of Chinese history at the University of Manchester, who joined us. Katie, it could have been an entire year ago wow. for our Red China episode, which remains one of my all time favourites. Yang too. Wen, welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> you sound less pleased, <laughs> Yang Wen, than <laughs> <Min> <laughs> Katie. <laughs> oh,
4: should I sound excited?
1: You sound exactly yes, as you, you. like. thank
3: you, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yang when when I've been doing my reading about today's episode, do you know what? Sometimes you feel you can get a handle on a person or a place or an event quite quickly. But the more that I read about Joe, the more I'm left puzzled. He seems to be something of an enigma.
4: Yes, he was a uh, a very complex character, much less easy to pin down um, than Mao. And it's very unfortunate that uh, we China scholars have not really studied him carefully.
3: I'm wondering why he's hasn't been studied carefully because um, was it a case of Mao just grabbing the spotlight in terms of how he engineered uh, his coverage? or was it a case of after Zhou Enlai died that he was kind of erased from the record?
4: Mm, I think historians and even ordinary people in China have not quite come to terms because I think they're busy with making money and doing a lot of other things. So the atrocities and things in the Cultural Revolution they haven't had time to really reflect. And John Lai has, has cultivated a very good image for himself, sort of a good popular image. You know, most people are fond of him. But there are also uh, people who now began to, to, to see and criticize him, but very hard to, to find evidence
3: Right. So he's kind of a slippery character because I understand that he was very cultured and charming and very yes. out- outgoing. And yes. uh, obviously he was able to kind of set himself perhaps against Mao, like good cop, bad cop kind of thing. I, I think that's a good
4: uh, comparison, although I'm not sure he set himself up against Mao, there was a, a famous kind of a dialogue between Chen Yun and Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s, and it was about Zhong Lai. Chen Yun, who was the architect of, also architect of China's reform, and he said that the cultural revolution would have been worse without Zhou Lai. Oh, and then Deng Xiaoping followed up and said, Well, it wouldn't have lasted that long if it's not for him. So, on the one hand, he helped Mao to remain in power. He made it possible for Mao to do a lot of things. And then, on the other hand, he did do, I don't know whether we can say his best, he did try to save other people. So if you, if you look at him, I'd say he wasn't in for miles crazy undertakings, neither was he against it in a, in a way. So I think for, for me as a historian, I thought he did everything to make sure that he stayed in power and he was not the victim.
1: Katie, I am even more intrigued than I was before about this man. So let's dig in, shall we, to his formative years. There is a quote that stands out for me, Katie, which apparently Joe says when he is 14. And he says that he wants to be, get this, A great man who will take up heavy responsibilities for the country in the future. Now, Katie, when I was 14, all I wanted to do was meet Belinda Carlisle. So he was clearly (laughs) set from a very different cloth to me.
4: Yeah, um, he came from a very well-to-do family, grand bourgeoisie. Um, He was well-educated, well-exposed. He went to France, Soviet Union everywhere. He was a city folk, unlike Mao, the country boy. He traveled widely in in China. There is no doubt he was converted by communism, and uh, that he was devoted to the cause. There, there's no there's no doubt about that. However, I think I don't know uh, whether I can say this. I think for him, communism was a means to an end. And for Mao, communism was the end. So there's a, there's a difference there between them. And, and Zhou Enlai represents a faction. It's maybe a small portion of the ranking leaders within the Communist Party for whom communism was a means to an end. And what was his
3: end, do you think? What was the goal for him?
4: I think it's a new China, a modern China uh, that is democratic, economically developed, has its own diplomacy, not being oppressed or uh, abused by foreign powers. He was a patriot. that that There's no doubt about that. So if he had been in Chiang Kai-shek's camp, he would have done the same thing right. to save China, to be a great leader for China.
1: He spends quite a lot of time in his younger days in Europe. He goes to London. He goes to Edinburgh. He goes to Paris. Um, how much of an effect does that have on his view of the world?
4: I think it, it had both on uh, in, for, from an ideological perspective, uh, because that was an era of great social and political upheaval in Europe as well. So it was a time where mm, communism was seen, especially given the context of the Russian Revolution, that communism was seen as a possible uh, solution for not just you know, China, but also was big in Europe as well. So that's one aspect. But the other aspect is, you know, he was very comfortable um, in Europe, travelling learning and agitating trying to recruit people you know sometimes when i see his pictures about him and read his his uh, what he wrote it reminds me of a lot of today's you know activists you know m- many of them myself included when i was an undergrad and even when i was doing phd you know all of them all of us came from very well-to-do families, and yet we were trying to champion the cause for the less privileged. I think that, you know that's what's going on with him. That he convinced him in Europe that he was doing the right thing. He was going down the right road.
1: And Mao seems to trust him totally. In a in a culture of rabid suspicion, when there's constant purges, he is one of the very few who Mao. Almost never questions
4: mm, I think in the beginning, no oh but I think he died about eight or nine months earlier than Mao. He died on the eighth of January nineteen seventy six I, I remember waking up hearing the the sound of sad music, and I said, "Oh gee, some great leader ha- ha- has died and this and, and this um, was
3: you as a child living in China. Yes, yes. You you, you know, the loudspeaker is always on,
4: broadcasting news, whatever. And you wake up, and it's very very cold. And I remember hearing that sound, the the sound of the sad music, the funeral music. There's a special funeral music in China. And you hear it, and I say, oh, gee, somebody has died. And, of course, I went to school, and some teachers were crying as well and saying that Premier Zhou has died. So yeah I'm not I'm not entirely sure that Mao trusted him towards the end of his life uh, because John Lai died in January Mao died in September and John Lai needed treatment for his uh, disease for his illness and Mao denied that you know he, Mao has to sign off everything. Um, I think I can put it this way. I think Mao made sure he died before he himself died. Yeah. Oh. Um, I mean, there's deep uh, secret that we don't know today. We still don't know. Because Mao's successor was Liu Shaoqi. And Liu died in 1968. And then he named another successor, Ling Biao, who died on his flight. Uh, to the Soviet Union, so supposedly defect in 1971. Yeah, and mys-
3: so, mysteriously died on that flight when yeah, he was. Yeah,
4: mysterious. To- Some people said he already died. You know, the plane was uh you know, because the pilot uh, of the plane was made a hero in the 1990s. Uh. so you know, normally you defect with the vice chairman. You 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 you're not a hero. You're a traitor. Right. So after that, I don't think Mao trusted. So, as much as he had probably before.
3: And probably the idea being that he Mao thought, wow, anyone could turn on me at any time. So yeah. maybe safer to trust nobody. Yeah, yeah. Yang Wen, I'm interested in more of your memories from being a kid in China. Um, what was your perception? I mean, I know you were very young. Were you like around 10 years old or something or during the Cultural Revolution in the 70s. Yeah, Um, And what was your perception of Cho Eun Lai's role as a leader?
4: I think he was very good at cultivating and leaving a very good image. So we all loved him because he was like, you know, a great grandfather who's always smiling. He was a very charming character you know, when he meets you, he's always looking straight into your eyes, asking about little detailed things that Mao would never think of. Because Mao is only interested in ideology. You know, he's always asking, you know, have you found a class enemy somewhere? You know, <laughs> that kind of it's a
1: terrible conversational gambit. <laughs> that. Yeah,
4: no, but John Lai, after a state banquet, he would go to the kitchen to thank everybody. In the kitchen, he would take pictures with them. See mm. Zhonglai is very detail oriented which is in sharp contrast with Mao Mao is a big idea man you know if the, if you got the big ideas right and he doesn't care Joe is very attentive very detail oriented he goes and shake hands with the driver he goes and and have uh, have a meal with the peasant even though i'm sure he didn't enjoy the meal okay but he's cultivated a very good image of he, h- himself which you know today i have very good memories of his, seeing him on the screen you know thinking oh you know how wonderful we we have such a a, a premier but as i become a historian read more about him i said oh no <laughs> he
3: he was more of a politician than a kindly yes. grandfather i'm yeah. i'm interested in Chow's role as the chief diplomat. He was the Minister of Foreign Affairs, which meant that he was, as far as the world leaders were concerned, the face of China. China, yeah. So he, uh, in a way, was almost perceived as, I'm thinking, more of a leader than Mao when he got out and about.
4: Yes. And I think he was a great uh, diplomat, because since his younger days, he was able to convert a lot of people, attract a lot of people in Yan'an during the war, during World War II. Zhou was very charming. He brought in a lot of people from different backgrounds to the party to work for the Communist Party. You see, that is his strength. And that made him a very good diplomat on the international stage. If you look at the Documentaries and photos. He went to Africa. He went to everywhere. He really earned China a seat or affection uh, on the international stage. And he was China's face. Mao could never do that. Mao would never do that. He would just go, hey, do you have a guerrilla force? Do you need money? <laughs> you know, uh, are you struggling against the, co- the capitalist voters in Mao? It's just something. <laughs> Mao is mad about his ideology, and Joe would ask, you know, and and he would, if he was passing through paris, he he would go to the airport and to get some Croissant, you know,
3: mm-hmm.
4: bringing back Croissant to colleagues. He had a character that very few people did. He was caring. at least he showed he was caring,
1: young when he sounds so essential to the success of, what happens in China. I was just looking at some of his, what we might call his diplomatic greatest hits. So he uh, goes to India and he talks with Nehru. He attends Stalin's funeral in 1953. He stands there with Malenkov and Khrushchev. He goes to the Geneva conference um, and... Curiously, has lunch with Charlie Chaplin, which is a little detail. Yes, you realize. see, that's his How character. That's the sort of man he is. He, he seeks out Charlie Chaplin.
4: Yeah, so that that's that's him. He's cosmopolitan. See, he knows films. He enjoys them. He thinks Charlie Chaplin is someone he could win over for his cause. You see, he 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 was a people person. He goes and shakes hands with you. Looks straight into your eyes and asks what matters to you and say what you need to hear.
3: And that is a, a hallmark of emotional intelligence as well. And all, and also absolute savviness in terms of the China brand, like the idea yes. that you would go to the biggest film star in the world, Charlie Chaplin, and try and win him over with the idea that, well, if you got Charlie Chaplin on your side, he might make some sort of big blockbuster movie uh, sympathetic yeah. to the cause.
4: Yeah, he knew that, you know, a lot of uh, people in the media or in the film industry were left wing, mm. uh, you know, would, would care about the, the, the less privileged and, and, and the poor and the oppressed. So he had that intelligence and emotional IQ that a lot of other people in the Communist Party didn't have. And if he had become number one, it would have we would have a very different China.
3: And why did he never seek the number one position?
4: This is a really interesting question which I don't think we have answer yet. I think there's one answer that we we could put on the table is that he did not have control of the military. Right. He was a, a civil leader, he was more of a diplomat, and he was the CCP's envoy, goes everywhere. So, you know, looking back, I would say that he could have staged a coup d'etat with the help of those who were uh, sidelined by Mao and became the number one. But on the other hand, I think he enjoyed being the second commander. Hmm. He, he enjoyed pulling the string from behind and they, they were characters like this in Chinese history where you are working for the emperor, but you're not the emperor. You work for the emperor, you represent the emperor and you actually enjoyed more real power than the emperor.
1: He seems to have had uh, informants everywhere as well. Yes, you know, he was he a is- big spy he's a big spy and does, is this what saves his life because there's two assassination attempts on him aren't they both are quite picaresque one is a plane which at the last minute he hears he shouldn't get on board is that right and is the other one some poison in some rice
4: mm-hmm. there might have been more times rather than just ah. you know this two times and uh, yes he was he didn't get on the plane to uh, Bandung uh, conference um He was the CCP's spy master. He ran that operation, which even today, we don't know how it operated because he didn't leave any trace. You see, that's what I said earlier. He had a a, a network of spies working even within the Japanese camp. So he was really, really an interesting character. And there's so much we don't know about him that we really need to know more about him.
1: Okay, we'll return to this story in a couple of moments, but first, a few adverts.
3: Hello, it's me again. I've got a podcast called Dot Com, the documentary series about the people of the Internet. And I just want to let you know that Series 2 is out now. It blasts open the door on Reddit, the front page of the Internet. It's kooky.
0: To me, Reddit is one of the last bastions of actual communities online.
3: It's sinister.
0: Reddit has really always prided
3: itself on being the mirror that it holds up to society, right? That... Society has a lot of imperfections and messiness and destruction and violence, but there's so much good there as well. It's some of the biggest, most shocking stories of the century.
0: I was raised in a fundamentalist Christian family. I feel like every time there's some big scandal going on, Reddit is 100% a contributor and an antagonist to it. Just search for .com, that's
3: D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe now. The thing that really strikes me is uh, once Mao gets into his full sadistic project of, uh, well, his two big hits, the Great Leap Forward in the the 60s, where he decides to put the pedal to the metal on uh, increasing China's production levels in industry and agriculture, and the targets are highly unrealistic. And then, of course, the cultural revolution after that, where he basically empowers every teenager to squeal on their school teacher and parents, and that, that has disastrous consequences. This is where Cho is really threading a very tiny needle here, because he's t- like, we discussed this at the beginning of this conversation, where he's trying to keep his head above water, trying to save his nearest and dearest from the excesses. But um, he is kind of fighting a losing battle because one of his big enemies is Madame Mao, who has a big beef with him. So can you tell us a little bit what, of what their relationship was like?
4: That, that is a very interesting relationship. Jiang Qing, Mao's final uh, partner, was an actress in Shanghai, but she had been married quite a number of times before and in english you would say she was a gold digger <laughs> she wanted to climb up the social ladder and of course she was left wing as well so he she arrives in yanan with lots of progressive left wing patriotic chinese students intellectuals performance artists in yanan when the war broke out and she Went straight to Mao. You know, the, go- the goat diggers' fashion is you go straight up.
3: Yeah, you, you want to see who's the, the highest uh, yeah. man on the totem pole.
4: Yeah, yeah. So, so she, she doesn't stop from the bottom, she, she just goes straight up. Now, Zhou had actually worried that Jiang Qing was a spy from the nationalists, you know, from Zhang Gaishi's sent. So Zhou was against the marriage. Mao wanted to marry her. And probably there's some sort of grievances on Zhang Qing's part. But Jiang Qing also knew that Zhong Lai was very important and ran the show most of the time because Mao hardly goes anywhere, says it, you know, says anything. He just writes, smokes, and makes a great speech. If she wants to succeed Mao, she has to get rid of Liu Shaoqi, who, who died in 1968. She has to get rid of Mao's second nominated successor, Lin Biao, in 1971. And she also has to get rid of don't lie, Yeah. Because there's no way she can manage don't lie. So that's the kind of their contest and coexistence,
3: in a way. Well, she uh, she did a... Uh, she hit Joe where it hurt in 1968 because she had his adopted son, Sun Yang, and his daughter, Sun Weishi, tortured and murdered by the Red Guards. Yes,
1: it's such a nest of vipers, Katie, isn't it? When you hear about that period again, as we did in, the, in our Red China episode, and it, it makes you wonder how someone like Cho survives as long as he does. It seems, Katie, to me, like he's not only is he aware of all the plots that are going on, but he's also doing his own plotting. He's like a grandmaster playing chess, yes. where he's looking ahead. So many more moves than everyone else. Yes.
3: That's why I said he's a spymaster. But I don't know, how can he cope when his own children are being killed? Like, how does he keep his eye on the prize? I don't understand the kind of character that he would have had to have been able to maintain under those conditions.
4: You know, he surrendered his own brother to the revolution, to the, to the Red Guards. What? He said, okay, he did something wrong. Here I am surrendering him to you. You can go and search his home and arrest him. So n- then you say, how how do you justify this? How do you compromise this? You know, come to a, a, a understanding, come to senses. He needs to protect himself. So if... It comes ultimately at the cost of his adopted children and brother. He does it to protect himself.
1: One of the things that he plots that comes off in in the most spectacular fashion, Yang Wen, is when he has a secret meeting with Henry Kissinger, who is President Nixon's security advisor. This is in 1971. And it's a big deal to have secret talks with Kissinger for both sides, both for the Republicans in the US and for the Communist Party. In China but then when Nixon famously lands in Beijing a year later it's Cho who is the first one to greet him before
4: Mao yes so he was the he was the man who, who really ran the show I'm not even sure Mao sanctioned this a hundred percent because the news headline is ah you know America and uh, China, you know, uh, restoration of, of diplomatic relations. But behind the back, Zhou had to take a beating from Mao and, 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 and Jiang Qing and the Gang of Four, saying that he was uh, becoming a revisionist and he was doing what Khrushchev was doing, warming up to, to the West. So he may have gotten all the news, you know, headlines and all that, Within the party, he was still criticized.
3: Right. So he kind of got ahead of his skis on that one. Yeah, Um, yeah. I do like that Kissinger had written about him, said that he'd he'd been extremely impressed with Joe's intelligence and character, describing him as equally at home in philosophy, reminiscence, historical analysis, tactical probes, and humorous repartee, Yeah, and could display an extraordinary personal graciousness, which, I mean, I guess— coming from a war criminal like Kissinger, (laughs) um, still nice to hear. But uh, speaking of the ongoing dance off uh, within the Chinese Communist Party between Cho and seemingly everybody else is uh, the animosity between him and the Gang of Four. Can you tell us who the Gang of Four were?
4: Yeah, the Gang of Four uh, is four people headed by Mao's wife Jiang Qing and Wang Hongwen, who was this red god like new Communist Party radical from Shanghai. Um, you have Zhang Chenqiao, who was in charge of the, well, Zhang Chenqiao and Yao Wenyuan, the, the two others who were in charge of the Communist Party's propaganda machine. So, what the Gang of Four had was the propaganda machine and the young radicals um, who were dedicated to, to Mao's cause. With, without really probably understanding what they're, they're doing and they saw Mao's aged, Mao's days were probably numbered. Um, they wanted to take over power and they thought they had a good opportunity because Jiang Qing was there. You know why we were talking, I don't know whether I should say this. I think if you look at today's China, what we lack is a character like Zhou. And can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because you see Xi Jinping acting alone. Nobody is is his second to, who can go to him and say, look. So that's what, that was what Zhou did in, in many
3: occasions. So he was able to go to Mao and say, get a grip.
4: Yes. And th- in a nice way. Of course. In a nice way. In his very casual care for, you know, he would watch Mao's mood, he would watch the occasion he's going. And one of the examples is really interesting is Mao and Jiang Qing had a daughter, and she was going through university. And uh, allegedly, she hasn't been home to see his her parents. So, Zhong Lai encouraged her to go home, see her parents, right? See Mao and Jiang Qing. Mm. So they prepared a nice dinner for the family together. And this girl, Mao and Zhang Qing's only daughter, she came back home for dinner. She ate the whole thing.
1: Classic student.
3: Yeah, because she was hungry. Oh, so even she suffered from the deprivations of the Cultural Revolution. Yes, yeah, so Zhou was very cunning. Oh, So why did you go home and visit your parents? Oh, that is so clever. So in other words, and so he's showing, not telling. So Mao and Zhenqing can see for themselves that, oh, yes. the kids are not getting enough food. Exactly. And and he
4: didn't do the, well, all, he, all he did was, oh, you know, you haven't been home to see your mom and dad for a long time. Uh, you, you should go and see them. Right.
1: What a mirror to hold up.
4: You see, see, he, he was very, see, today we lack a character like that. Yeah, yeah. And and in, around Putin, we, we lack a character like that. Y- yes. Mm-hmm. That was his role that nobody could do. He could go so close without knocking the, on the door. Nobody could go to see, not even Jiang Qing could go to see Mao straight without knocking on the door, without telling the guards. So his
3: own wife was not allowed just to stroll in? No,
4: no, no. Only John Lai, when Mao was in his pajamas or in his bed, he could sit by Mao's bedside. You see, yeah. he had that kind of close relationship with Mao and he could cultivate Mao, wake up Mao, you know, correct Mao in a very sort of non-confrontational, non-political way.
3: The technical term for that is pajama privileges. (laughs) Ah, pajama privilege. He he definitely had
4: pajama privileges. Nobody else, absolutely nobody else.
1: So why then, Yang Wen, is Mao so cutting in the aftermath of Joe's death from bladder cancer, all these rules about how people, youngsters like you, how everyone across China can or can't mark his death.
4: Yeah. He died in January, John Lai, in 1976. And many people in the country were very angry about the Cultural Revolution. It's just you can't not go on like that. So this is similar to 1989, you know, the Tiananmen Square. Is, is people, ordinary people, voicing their grief, but by doing that, they're really voicing their frustration with the regime, with the revolution that goes on and on. So it's not the mourning that the regime was suppressing
3: oh, right. because
4: they knew what was behind the facade of mourning Zhou Lai. And of course, um, you don't want them to, to mourn the, you know, John Lai when Mao's still alive. Yes. You know, uh, Zhou Lai died in January and late January, early February is always Chinese New Year. Yes. You know, Chinese New Year always falls on that time. Mm. Yeah. According to a memoir I recently read from his uh, late secretary, John Lai's secretary, who now lives in the United States, during the Chinese New Year, 1976, his wife said no firecrackers. So the whole compound where the ranking communist leaders lived, nobody uh, used firecrackers, except suddenly the household heard firecrackers. And then Zhou's wife asked one of the servants to go and secretly see who is, you know, blowing firecrackers.
3: Yeah, disrespecting.
4: Yeah, it's Mao's compound.
3: Oh. Right. So everybody
4: else was quiet. And this was uh, confirmed also by the memoir of John Lai's niece as well, that Mao, you know, told them, go, go for it. So he was happy that Joel died.
3: So this Tiananmen incident in 1976, where they're saying up to two million people uh, participated and they're motivated by anger over not just the treatment of so, but also the revolt against the cultural revolution and the failure of Mao's policies and also yes. being freaked out about, you know, where's China heading? And um, what happens there? It ha- do they uh, physically and forcibly suppress the protests, yeah.
4: So it became a counter-revolutionary movement in the eyes of the regime, and some people were arrested. Um, most people were just frightened um, to 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 you know to disperse. Um, this was the precursor for 1989. Yeah, people go to Tiananmen Square to voice their frustration, anger, and of course. Been labelled as traitors, as you know, anti-regime, and it was not just on Tiananmen Square. You know, around the country as well. Right. Did you
1: hear about it, young young Wen? Did you hear about I it? I did. When you
4: went? I did in 1976. I did. I, I was a kid, and that was also the year I went to Beijing with my mom and my brother uh, to see our grandmother in Manchuria. So I, we, but we were uh, passing Beijing two months later, and. And there was a big earthquake as well in in the summer, China, in 1976. So it was a very bad year for China. And even as a kid, I I kind of knew something was wrong. Mm. I
1: guess you would, because it's you've lived in a country that's been so carefully and devastatingly controlled from above. So if you hear these ripples of mm. repression not working, or ripples of a cancer revolution, it's it's going to affect you greatly, I'm sure.
4: Yeah, I, I didn't quite understand, but I do know things were not going the right way.
1: So after he dies, Yang Wen, who takes up the baton for him? What's his immediate legacy in the three or four years after his death?
4: That's a that's a very good question, because the legacy changed after that. Deng Xiaoping took over, more or less, the management, daily management of the State Department, if, if you put it in the American Counterpart, and I said earlier, Zhou was very good at cultivating an image for himself, so people loved him. Uh, There's outpouring of grief and anger all for him, even though he enabled Mao. He was seen in the final years, and in the early reform years, as sort of the architect of China's reform, because he called for four modernizations. After the normalization of uh, relations with America, he believed that the party's prime task was uh, economic development rather than class struggle, which was Mao's main concern. So he, he raised the proposed full modernization to modernize China, to, and Deng Xiaoping was, was taken along and it, as his deputy, and, and Deng Xiaoping took over.
3: Young one if you were going to give Joe and Lai a verdict on uh you know marks out of ten, how well did he do? how would you assess him
4: that's a that's a hard question good lord mm, how would you
3: well I would say based on everything that you've just told us uh it was better with him in the picture than without him and I'm really interested in this idea that you put forward that Putin needs a cho and Lai and um Xi Jinping Xi Jinping needs a Zhou Lai like a we, figure
4: like that Yeah yeah, yeah
3: a, a figure like that Yes
4: Yeah we all could use big leaders especially dictators if they had somebody like Zhou Enlai even though he's an enabler could have lessened the damage because he he did try he did try to protect a lot of people and Deng Xiaoping was one of them
3: Well, sometimes all you can do is try, and sometimes all you can do is try to try. Thank you, Yang Wen-sung. Thank you. Again, for your unremitting fabulosity. Yang Wen was, of course, our Red China expert. And now I know everything I need to know on Cho Eun-lai, your historical analysis. And life experience has really elevated this episode. So thank you for trusting us with your personal story as well.
4: Thank you, Katie, and thank you, Tom, for having me.
1: And maybe, Yang when when Katie and I uh, get towards the conclusion of our own long march, the penultimate lyric that Billy comes up with in his song is, of course, China's under martial law. So uh, maybe you can come and join us once more for our, our swan song.
4: China is today under martial law.
3: Yes.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. that's good. And worse, worse than before, because you're totally controlled by uh, technology.
3: Oh, my gosh, that is a whole different monster in the basement.
4: Yeah, because before, there's no technology. You could disappear. Today, you can't. Even overseas, they can track you down. Today is worse than than the Cultural Revolution era.
1: And on that ominous note, Yang Wen, thank you once more. Thank you. (laughs) Katie, I don't think it's a great mystery. We're big fans of Yang Wen.
3: Oh, she is so great. She's so dry. She's so blunt. She tells it like it is and she cracks me up.
1: (laughs) Also, we are very lucky on this podcast because we have guests who know a great deal about the subject they're talking about. Yeah. But it's wonderful to have someone who both has that knowledge and the first-hand experience.
3: Oh, the first-hand experience. And, I mean, unfortunately for her... And her cohort back in China, they lived through and suffered through so much trauma. But as she says, it's important to acknowledge it and process it. So hopefully, in some small way, this discussion is part of processing it.
1: And did you find as the episode went on that you were confident of your pronunciation? Obviously, <laughs> Because I was making him increasingly Joe-like. <laughs> As it went on, and I went right up against Joe and then tried to reverse all the way back to Chu.
3: I became increasingly less confident <laughs> and was varying on the spectrum between Chow and So. <laughs> so I was just giving it... I was kind of just... Uh, Uh, eeny meeny miny mowing it and i think maybe every 4.5 pronunciation was correct
1: (laughs) i think that's pretty good going katie i also (laughs) liked the idea of um going to a dinner party with Mao, and he launches straight in with well is there any guerrilla activity around it (laughs) what can you tell me
3: what a bore i would rather stab my eye out with a rusty fork than be sat next to Mao talking about how the proletariat reigns supreme
1: Although, interestingly, if you were, he'd be, probably be quite into the idea of someone having their eye stabbed out with a rusty forecast <laughs> right up the street.
3: You know what? We didn't get into this with Yang yeah. Wen, but he did have an eye for the ladies, apparently. And he did have a private pool. Oh, hello. So um, I think the talk he talked was slightly different from the walk he walked.
1: <laughs> I think you're right. So, Katie, where do we go next on our great Billy-inspired journey?
3: We are going to go down a river... All the way to Thailand, in the middle of World War II, to visit the bridge on the River Kwai.
0: Oh.
1: Katie, if we do that, I shall spend the entire episode talking in the style of the British officers on the film.
3: What have I done?
1: <laughs> <laughs> in the meantime, if you would like another podcast to listen to, give Devils in the Dark... Ago. Now, this is from Audio Boom Studios. It's a brand new podcast from Helen Anderson and her hilarious best friend, Danny Howard. They explore some of the wildest, most gruesome, and totally shocking killers the world has ever seen.
3: Oh, yeah. You're going to be hearing from psychologists and criminal experts while Helen and Danny fill you in on all the gory details. But somewhere in all the darkness, they'll find the laughs and the light.
1: Search Devils in the Dark. And click follow so you never have to miss an episode.
3: And remember, you can follow us at Spread That Fire. And for ad-free bonus material to Fire and lots of our other shows, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on Apple Podcasts.
1: Ooh, Katie. And then you become, of course, a member of the Friday Club, which is…
3: Is that like the Mile High Club?
1: But on a Friday. Okay. And with podcasts. Okay. And less sex, I think, but...
3: If you do it wrong. (laughs) But what you do get are ad-free episodes released early. Speaking of early release. Crowd Network.
1: A place where you belong. Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender. Hi. As we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's
2: beating heart, search The Moon Underwater, or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.
0: Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.